You're listening to the Hybrid Cloud Podcast. This is Chris Evans, and I'm here today with Andrew Maloney from Softdyne. Andrew, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing, Chris? Very well, thank you. Very well. Excellent. So, Softdyne, tell everybody about what the company is and uh, what you do for them. Absolutely. So, uh, so I'm Andrew Maloney. As you said, I'm the Chief Marketing Officer at Softdyne. Softdyne are reinventing, really, the way you build data infrastructure. It's probably the grandest way to describe what we're about. Um, very recently, we just pivoted the business from being known really as a storage appliance vendor, uh, building uh, uh, storage op optimized for the Ceph open source project, to really uh, exposing what the game plan was all along for the last 10 years since we, uh, since we launched SoftIron, which was actually to become a cloud platform vendor and create something that was very different and very unique and think uh, solves a lot of the, the kind of issues that we're seeing in the market today. Excellent. So we're here to talk about uh, your new platform, mm -hmm. uh, which is called HyperCloud, which we'll get into in a bit more detail. But really, this is um, talking about the whole cloud thing. So really, we're talking about how you would potentially build your own private cloud on premises. And private cloud and things like HCI tend to, I think, to get merged together and misconstrued. And to me, HCI and all those sort of platforms, virtualization, all that sort of stuff, are really nothing more than that physical layer abstracted a bit, which gives you something to build on. They're not actually private clouds in their own right. I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think if you looked at the market today, you'd think everybody was a cloud vendor, right? Because that's yeah. kind of how everyone positions what they're doing. But I think, you know, you've hit the nail on the head. In most instances, what is available in the market if you want to build a private cloud you know build and run your own cloud infrastructure yeah is, is essentially uh, a, a composition job you're going to have to take technologies from a number of different vendors you're going to have to bolt them all together yourself and while some of the vendors will have if you like pre-integrated some of the hardware pieces or some of the software pieces in some ways it's always going to be a, an integration task to build the rest of that cloud and even when you've done that in many instances what you're building is something that isn't really truly a cloud in terms of it being completely elastic in terms of how build you can big you can build it excuse me mm -hmm. um, but also that consumption layer the bit that makes a cloud a cloud you know the bit that create uh, that enables you to consume the infrastructure uh, build very quickly from application marketplace from templates from services thread that all together, you know, create a multi-tenant environment, monitor the usage of that environment. All of those pieces are really what makes a cloud infrastructure a cloud, as opposed to just virtualized data infrastructure. And I think that's, I think as an industry, we've kind of been doing everyone a bit of a disservice by everybody claiming to deliver clouds. Absolutely. I, I look at the sort of the list of the things I would um, see and expect. And you said, you said most of them already, but things like self-service, multi-tenancy, the ability for somebody in charge, somebody at the back end who's an admin, to expose features for users to consume, but also to take those away, you know, to have control over what features are available, uh, standardized functionality around things like network storage and compute, so that not only do I know what I'm getting each time, but um, I actually have then templated images which say to me, if I want to build a XYZ, I know how to build that. And 
if you look at, say, I'll pick Amazon because that's one of the ones I'm probably more familiar with. Sure. But you look at the way you do things at Amazon, you build a virtual virtual cloud infrastructure, and then you set your networking within that, you set things like ACLs, and then on top of that, you build things like EC2 instances and applications, and you can take from the marketplace. And not only that, but you could, you know, you could buy predefined services like RDS. So... All of that goes in, in a multi-tenant environment. You don't know your, you, as far as you're concerned, you could be the only person logging into your account and doing stuff. Exactly. But you're in an environment with hundreds of thousands of other people, and all of those things have to come together to make a, cl a cloud work properly. I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, there's there's a reason that public cloud is so seductive, so so attractive to to use. It's because in order to create the, that environment you just described. You know, underneath the hood, there are a dozen, maybe maybe more different discrete technologies that somebody has got to integrate together and then run in a secure, resilient fashion uh, on behalf of all of those thousands of tenants. Now, if you're a hyperscaler, you know, and you've got tens of thousands of engineers and a billion dollar payroll to, to pay for all those guys, you can do that. You can use brute force engineering to do to do the integration work and do the ongoing maintenance and operations work to keep that up and running. The challenge, of course, is if you want to then replicate that, you know, you want to bring that seductive goodness of consumption back into your own uh, infrastructure. You know, you want to build a hybrid cloud, being you know the thing that the vast majority of larger organizations are doing today. Then how do you do that? How do you do that effectively without having that army of specialist engineers uh, who are all uh, kind of experts in those different silos of technology that we've created over the decades? And that's kind of what we've been addressing with HyperCloud really is how do you solve that problem? Okay, so why don't we talk about what HyperCloud actually is, and then then we can dig in, and um, I can challenge you on whether you think it does actually deliver the the discussion. Oh, okay, you just said. deal. I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. <laughs> but let, let's but let, describe it first. Sure. Explain how people would actually consume it. Okay. Um, and then we'll dig into the detail of how it actually works. All right. Well, let's wind the clock a, a back a bit. I think maybe just to set some context. So Softline's actually been running. Uh, as a business for 10 years. So August of, of this year, uh, 2022, was our 10th anniversary. And actually the business was founded because of this silo problem that we identified back in the day. So if you look at what's happened over the, the last probably two decades in data infrastructure in general, more, more than just clouds, we've allowed the our industry to become very siloed. You know, we think about compute, network, and storage as being three of the big silos. And, and those technologies have ended up running on very discrete paths. I mean, even, even if you looked at one of the big billion dollar behemoths in, in our industry, those divisions are completely separate, multi-billion dollar organizations, separate roadmaps that, you know, really could be completely different companies. And we've then had to try and bring all that technology together. And we've over the years, we've created layer upon layer of more technologies to try and bridge these silos, to bring them together in a meaningful way, to orchestrate, to automate, uh, to consume more laterally, you know, to virtualize and then consume all of that. And we have this layer upon layer. And we, we kind of identified all of that uh, a, uh, a decade ago and wanted to build something different. More than that, I think we got to a point where hardware didn't matter anymore. At least that was the perception. 
and we were allowing technology, the hardware at least, to be genericized, to be built, you know, to the lowest common denominator in the lowest possible uh, location around the world uh, in vast quantities. Uh, and there was really very little differentiation going on down at the hardware layer as well. And a lot of obscurity being built into that hardware as well because of all the generic designs and pre-compiled code, pre pre-assembled sub-assemblies that were common throughout those designs. Um, and so we set about trying to create a single platform to solve all of the data infrastructure that was required. Uh, and that's what we've been building over the last decade. And two or three years ago, we exposed some of that in the form of storage and uh, hyperdrive, the storage appliances that we brought to market. But the reality was we built a single platform to build compute network and storage in a single integrated uh, manner to solve the, the whole of the data center problem. Now in parallel, if, if go I, on, sorry. If I, if I can just interrupt you there a sure. second. Um, I'd, I, just for a, a you know degree of balance and, and all the rest of it, I would say that if you look at the way the industry went, we actually went through a phase where the enormous growth and the transition towards x86 basically pushed us towards the need for things like centralized storage because uh, we couldn't support putting storage in every single physical server yeah, we put out yeah. there. Um, and that was before the age of virtualization. Then, you know, 2000s, we, we suddenly decided virtualization was a great technology, which it is. And that allowed us to optimize uh, the, the technology. And I think we sort of pushed ourselves into a bit of a corner because before virtualization came along, the centralization of storage as an example and the and the skills that went around building that up and making that much more efficient were done because we had such a heavy distribute distribution of computing across a range of very different platforms mm. you know everything mm. from sun to solaris and everything like that when we moved to virtualization and then when we moved more towards the sort of cloud model i think that's when those things broke down mm. because suddenly the static nature of building storage and building out components and, and everything else didn't fit with the dynamic nature of the way that cloud works, where you want to be able to delete and create resources on demand by tenant and by everything else. So I think we sort of engineered ourselves into a, into a corner to a certain degree, mm. as well as all the other things that you said, simply because that's where we came from. And sometimes you do need to start again and say, actually, hands up. You know, we need to we need to start again and think about this in a different way. Yeah, you know, I think you're absolutely right, and that's in essence what we uh, what we set out to do with Soft Iron, and we started from scratch to think about the problem holistically, and in fact also thinking about it in terms of building cloud. So, we, what we what we said was, what if we tried to build a single technology? that was completely designed for one thing only. And that one thing being build the most elastic, most secure, most efficient, easiest to operate cloud technology. Um, and that's really what we've done with HyperCloud. So from the very basics of the hardware, all the way up through the stack, all of that virtualization layer we just talked about, all of the uh, tenancy management, building out service catalogs, build an entire technology, an entire infrastructure that doesn't look like regular compute network and storage anymore, actually, when you look at the way the hardware is architected. We can talk a bit about that. But something which means that now I don't need specialists anymore. I just need IT generalists. I can build the basics of a cloud in less than half a rack, in less than half a day, fully multi-tenant, multi fully secure, fully resilient. 
but it'll also expand to hundreds of racks in dozens of locations, essentially as big as I, I need my cloud infrastructure to grow, but without actually adding exponential complexity. And that's really mm. what we've managed to achieve with, with HyperCloud. Uh, it's a very and, different kind of model to anything else in, in the market today. Right. So the sort of thing I would I look at and think when I hear those sort of descriptions are things like perhaps the way that Amazon's delivered, say, outposts, mm. where you look at a rack and it's just a rack of, I'm going to, I'll use the word generic. I don't really mean, I don't mean it in a negative sense, but just, you know, generic servers that have got storage in them. Some of them might have storage, some of them might not, but there's a big back networking backplane, but effectively each of those nodes is giving you computing yeah. and storage or both and you you know you rack them all together you, you network them all together yeah really it's it's an extension of obviously aws's core cloud capability delivered to you yeah. at the edge we've kind of flipped that on its head in many many respects put the customer if you like back in control as opposed to the public cloud vendor what we've built is an architecture that enables the, an IT generalist, you know, at, at the uh, enterprise or the, you know, the, the organization to build, effectively build their own outposts. But now it's not actually designed, A, it's designed to run as your own independent cloud, regardless of, even regardless of external IP connectivity. So you could actually run it completely air-gapped if you wanted to and have your own cloud. But also it's able to interconnect with any other cloud as well. So you, in the smallest sense, you could you could think of it almost as your own outpost, um, but with all of the technology and te complexity problems solved deep in the technology, as opposed to by uh, composition, you know, by assimilating lots of layers and abstracting that right. away. Okay, so let's think. Let's talk about so the hardware. Let's start at the bottom then. Yeah. If I was a customer and was deploying this, what would it look like from sure. a physical perspective? Yeah. So, so there's one key concept that we, we need to talk about first and this is the and, and this is one of the key differences of the way that the hardware is architected so you, you're building your cloud out of at one level you, you could argue are, are appliances there are one new uh, pieces of hardware that you're going to build your cloud from separated in compute nodes storage nodes and interconnect nodes now uh, from the outside the interconnect looks like it's a network switch in reality it's doing much more than that we've kind of what we've done is we've moved all of the state of the cloud into the interconnect fabric um, so the compute nodes the storage right. nodes do don't hold any of the state uh, of of their um, operation within those appliances they don't even have a boot disk for example now what that means is that once you've connected the first interconnect to the rest of your um, the rest of your infrastructure. Uh, now adding more interconnect, more compute, more storage is essentially as simple as plugging in the power and plugging in a network cable. All of the rest of the configuration is held within the fabric, held within the interconnects, and they then manage uh, your entire hardware fleet, as we're now calling it, um, given that they're not really uh, appliances in the in the kind of traditional sense. Uh, they will operate that as a single fabric. So no matter how many nodes that you have within your fabric, it's actually just managed as a single entity, a single IP address. So that dramatically simplifies. So any of the, we'll just take networking. I mean, networking is a really interesting one, isn't it? Because 
networking mm. has almost been the, the the poor stepchild of of innovation in the last decade or more. It's got faster, but really it's also got more complicated. And then also just been treated as the plumbing. I think I saw a statistic the other day that forty percent of payroll in IT is networking uh, staff because it's so damn yeah. complicated. Yeah, I I always think of networking as. Um, a very big game of pass the parcel. Right. <laughs> whereas, whereas storage is more about you have to look after things and protect them. Yeah. Networking is just oh, you have it, you have it, and if you drop the parcel, you just oh, somebody finds another one out of, out of nowhere and it goes oh look, somebody sent us another parcel, and off we start yeah. again. You know, because somebody did a retry at a much higher level, and yeah. you lose the parcel further down. Who cares? Well, and you know, Chris, better than me because I know that you you know you have got a long history of of actually trying to operate these kind of infrastructures. It's always the networking that screws you up, right? And it, it adds, yeah. moves, changes, upgrades. Nine times out of ten, it's the network that, that's going to be the, the pain. And so what we've done is yeah. actually we've, again, we've turned it on its head and made the network actually the place that adds all of the value that where all the intelligence resides. And now compute nodes, you know, you just keep adding them. Need more compute? Buy another, buy another node, plug it in. You know, anyone who can operate a screwdriver can rack and stack it and plug it in. You've added more more compute. You've added more storage in exactly the same way, whether it's spinning disk or SSD or NVMe. It doesn't matter. You know, you just add the capability you need in a really consumable way, and it just keeps expanding as as big as you need it. Yeah, I think the idea of statelessness, if that is a word, yeah. <laughs> don't even know whether it is a word. Might have just made it up. Let's go with it. Um, yeah, the idea of statelessness in in compute. For, for at least, especially for servers, I think is really important. So, two decades decades ago, we were boot. We had the ability to boot servers from a sand drive, right. and and not have state in the server. But it was so horrendously complicated, and it didn't work when you did failover between a primary and a secondary system. And if you didn't do it right in the BIOS, and you didn't pick the, you didn't have the LUN defined as LUN zero in some of the ones I did. It simply wouldn't work. You couldn't pick the, your LUN of choice in that in that instance. So we never used it because it was horrendously right. complicated. But actually, it was very logically sensible because at the end of the day, a server doesn't need to have any state stored with it. It should literally just come up when you come up with a power. It should have an, an OS, a very lightweight OS or a hypervisor. And then when you don't need it anymore, you shut it down. And all that config can come from somewhere else. You know, that exactly. server dies or you want to replace it, refresh it, upgrade it, extend them. You just exactly reboot it on and, and find the, but otherwise you spend a lot of time nurturing that bit of hardware to remember that that boot disk in that server is that the one yeah. is the one you want to use and all that sort of stuff. You know, it's crazy. Yeah, and you go back to this this notion that hardware doesn't matter. I mean, the reality is you're building infrastructure, right? The hardware does matter mm. because you've got to care and feed for it. And so we've kind of taken that to the nth degree almost. So we talked about statelessness, but. Even be even before you get to that point, you know, we, we designed and optimized all of these appliances just to do all of these nodes, I should say, uh, just to do the one thing that they're, they're uh, designed for. So the storage nodes uh, are, are exactly optimized just to be the storage node that they are. Same with compute nodes, but they also have places where they are very common as well. So the BMC, you know, the first thing that gets power that, that controls all of the um, the the basic operation of, of the node, we designed that from scratch. We built it. We build them ourselves. We wrote, we wrote all right. the firmware. We wrote the operating system and operated and optimized it for these nodes. And so we stripped out all of the fat and all of the complexity. And then the you know the result is obviously something which 
you know, all the, all the kind of keeping the lights on stuff is, is now dealt with for you. And also it's running incredibly efficiently as well because we've stripped out big processes that aren't now required, you know, extra hardware that isn't now required, light, a lightweight operating system, all, all of these pieces. So and we take storage, we, we always, uh, you know, even with hyperdrive, um, you know, we talked about that and obviously there's a shared heritage there with, with hyperdrive. You know, our storage appliances run at maybe 20% of the power consumption of an equivalent off-the-shelf appliance. And that's now mm. carried through to an, the entire cloud infrastructure. So even if you go to our website today, you can build a cloud architecture based on, you know, what you want. And you can see exactly how much power that's going to consume, how many racks, how much power. And you can you can see that. And we've managed to optimize that in a really interesting way. There's two things there, I think. First of all, that idea that we've ended up in a situation where, so, and I'll use Windows as an example of this, you know, you, you install Windows on a machine and it has to go and try and work out what the hardware looks like. And that hardware could be one of hundreds of different processors, motherboards, driver types, you name it. And over time, they've all been added in. And the, the footprint of Windows, when it in, installs now, it, I think I, I, I installed it the other day on a particular machine. I put a 100 gig boot disk in place just in case because <laughs> I thought the last time I installed this, 50 wasn't enough. So you think that's crazy, a 100 gig boot yeah. disk. You know, for all the devices it might have to determine it, it knows about. And all of that is cruft, all its overhead, it's all stuff you just don't need yeah. if you cut, cut down and you only support a very specific piece of the hardware. And that reminds me to a certain degree of the mainframe days, you know, where the operating system was written in such a way that it only knew about a, a, a subset of pieces of hardware. There's only one set of hardware that, that it would have to learn and talk to. Exactly. So the OS didn't have to know about four different types of processor um, vendors. It didn't have to know about all these different things. If those vendors wanted to talk to a mainframe soft bit of software, they had to emulate it. So when Amdahl came along and you know, built an IBM clone. It had to literally clone the IBM and look like an IBM. All the, all the disk compatible systems from storage tech and all those other people, all the tape compatible systems, all had to make themselves look like IBM devices. Right, right. It wasn't the case of them being a device that IBM then decided to support in drivers and in software. It didn't work like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, and as a result, the IBM code would be a lot cleaner because of that. And you've sort of built not, I'm not saying you built a modern mainframe, but you've gone back to the idea of, of saying that you're building a, a, a tightly coupled system where the software and the hardware are tightly coupled exactly. because of that, like the mainframe was. I think you're exactly right. You know, it's definitely an analogy that that has occurred to me as well. It's almost we're almost taking the goodness of the way that we used to build uh, IT back in the what 70s, 80s, I suppose, and yeah. and bringing that forward to the present day in terms of how you want to build cloud you know everybody uh, in any organization of any size is wanting to build cloud infrastructure within their own four walls you know, there's a lot of data repatriation going on as i'm sure you know you, you've talked yeah. about i know but how do you do that without without having all of those technologists and all those specialists not only to build it but then also to run it and live with it you know how do you solve all of those interconnect the, the threads problem as we talk about it you've got all these different technologies that are all threaded together you don't know what's going to happen if you pull on one thread you can't even tell what it's connected to anymore and you don't know what the implication would be so even like a simple firmware update somewhere in that fabric 
is it could could spell disaster again by being very opinionated we can literally roll out a firmware update to the hypercloud fabric you mm. you apply it once and then the fabric deals with rolling it out across the entirety of of the real estate of your cloud as, as one simple example yeah i i can remember days where we would do something as simple as saying well we need to update the firmware on our um, hba cards that were in all the servers yeah and that one small task was enormous because a there wasn't the ability to collect the data directly from the server so sometimes you had to log on eventually the management tools did get to a point where you could collect it uh from the the cards directly in in line with the software but initially you couldn't and then you had to go and check that that the firmware and the drivers would match uh for the, ver the the version of card and then you had to check that the firmware the drivers would match with the version of the <laughs> code yeah, running on the exactly. fabric switch and the operating system and all of these things had to align before you could even decide yeah. to go ahead and make a change so your dependency map became enormous and you know you'd start out saying we're going to change say that the fabric that switch code for example yeah. and somebody got ah but and then all of these other tasks would just mushroom out of nowhere that you now had to do before you could even do that one task you were in, intending to do so it becomes very very messy yeah. if you don't own the infrastructure and you don't have it tight and well you know we we backed ourselves into a corner to a certain degree with yeah that absolutely because right. of the way we've gone you know it's an evolution of the industry to some degree it's an evolution of the way the industry has been funded as well if i'm honest you know i think mm. it hasn't been very trendy to invest in hardware uh, you know, among the you know, the the VC community, and and I think that's changing as as well now, especially when we look at sustainability and and look at some of the deep tech type stuff, hard tech out here being called now. So we're kind okay. of a, a ahead of ahead of the curve in many respects around that. I think the other piece though that we haven't talked about, which is also really critical, is is this um, the challenge of data sovereignty or, or building sovereign clouds and actually building secure infrastructure because all of that complexity that's built into clouds normally is obviously an enemy of building something that's secure as well as being resilient and with this big shift to data sovereignty and to building sovereign clouds if you can build something well a if you manufacture it yourself you've designed it all yourself you have access to every line of code that's running in in the entire fabric you can do some really interesting things and People, uh, you know, when we started to talk about secure provenance, this ability to enable people to transparently audit everything that, that we do, you know, every line of code, yeah. every bit of hardware, come visit the factory and audit the factory and watch the products actually being built, if that's a part of your, your auditing process. That's kind of unique and very different. And it made some sense when we were building storage, but we, we kind of knew that it only really made total sense when you could build an entire infrastructure and obviously that's what we were always planning to do and that's yeah. so great when we when we launched hypercloud you know just a few weeks ago to be able to then say this is why we were doing all these things this is why we did we went to all the trouble to build an entire harbor architecture and all of the software that's running within it and all of the application layers above it you know to build one single integrated auditable fabric for 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 security and, and provenance as much as for the simplicity and efficiency we could we could build by doing that 
Yeah, and and you've seen the cloud vendors do something similar. So Amazon went down the route of Nitro, and they yeah. uh, they pushed out a lot of the um, software components into hard, dedicated hardware, which they now can control in very very good detail. They put in sort of security modules in there, yeah. so they've got roots of trust within those devices and all that sort of stuff. So they've done a significant amount of re-engineering work that's pushing them away very much pushing them away from a traditional model of what hardware might look like for an on-premises environment because they needed to do that for scale for yeah, control yeah, for security yeah. and you're sort of following a similar path in the sense that you're recognizing the value of owning the that hardware relationship yeah and it's interesting to think that most most of the people aren't doing that most people are thinking commodity is still good enough yeah, I think anyone who's tried to build a, a, any kind of cloud infrastructure at scale, and I'm thinking about anyone who's tried to play with OpenStack, is a, maybe is is a good example, because uh, often, because we've talked about enterprises building hybrid clouds, but equally there's a, a exploding set of cloud service providers, you know, who aren't at necessarily at hyperscale. They're, I mean, they're sizable cloud service providers. Uh, yep. Who are also, you know, wrestling with that complexity because they even they don't have these tens of thousands of engineers to to operate. But yeah, I, I think. And, uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. And I was just going to add one other thing that we really sort of very quickly glossed over, and then we're going to talk about software next. Mm. But we we sort of glossed over the uh, a little bit about the power side of things. Mm. You know, things like that's become a real sensitivity for people. So. If you've got the ability to go back and look at your infrastructure and say, how could we actually cut out another 10%, another 20%? You know, what could we do that might give that customer yet another little bit of maneuvering room? If you can do that in your infrastructure and every time you bring out a new cycle of the of the hardware and you can go, yep, it's 20% more efficient than the last one we sold you, you know, that's, that's something where the customer will look at it and go, you know, I've got a, a really absolute comparison I can do between that and, you know, the old and the new. It's very difficult to do that in modern environments. You know, it's even hard to do, if you're thinking about, think about it from sustainability terms, it's even hard to do based on the, the sustainability analysis that comes out of the public cloud vendors. Um, yeah. But yeah, certainly for us, there are a few different aspects to, to that power saving and energy saving. I mean, obviously there's a sustainability piece, you know, we re estimate that for every 34 terabytes that you run on on our infrastructure of storage, you're going to save about a ton of carbon based on using generic hardware as, as an alternate. But beyond that, if we think about the cost of energy, just the cost of energy full stop, you know, when, when you start multiplying yeah. to multiple racks and a whole data center, those 10, 20, and in, but in some cases for us, 50, 60, 70% less power is a huge, huge saving. But even more so if you start thinking about trying to deploy in colos, because we're already seeing you know renewal contracts from the colo vendors starting to you know spiral because obviously they're hedging their bets as well. They don't know where the energy costs are going to go. So yeah, I've had that. I've had that personally. So okay. um, our lab environment, um, they want to double the um, the cost of the yeah. of the um, environment. You know, the, sorry, the costs have doubled, but that's because the the power component of the cost is tripled it it's unsustainable in some respects mm. to try and manage that but they've got no choice i guess because they've hedged as much as they can and now they're in a position where there's nothing left to hedge yeah, absolutely and and so we're, we're seeing that and we're seeing projects moving you know, moving our way 
purely because of the energy, let, let alone you know reducing the skills required and all of those other yeah. th- uh, benefits that we, we talked about. Just the power savings have been huge, and even service service providers, storage as a service, backup as a service type, service providers migrating from using generic hardware to using using soft iron because of the energy they can they can save. So there's that, but then there's also the utilization of that hardware as well. So we're using these one U increments. So you're adding adding at a quite a granular level. And because it's so easy to add more capability, you don't have to do the whole project in, on day one. You know, you, you literally, if I can, even in a colo, I can send out three or four new nodes and get the intelligent hands service at the colo to install these things for me. Because yeah. there is no installation, really. There's screw the thing in the rack, plug in the network cable, plug in the power cable, job done. And so, and so that becomes a, an efficiency thing as well. So you can run at a level of efficiency in terms of the deployed uh, real estate that you're using that, that potentially you wouldn't be able to do any other way as well. So th- yeah, there's all sorts and of benefits. There's a risk. There's a risk angle there as well, and that's you're you're eliminating a lot of the risk, especially when it comes to refresh. So mm. when you want to take something out and say, right, that's that's going now. So let's remove that it can very easily get into a real mess where you're trying to work out how things are plugged together and which one should we really be moving. And some of it's plugged into a network switch, some of it's plugged into fabric, some of it's plugged in over here. Yeah, yeah. And how many times have you heard about somebody turning the wrong server off, yeah. <laughs> you know, unplugging the wrong the wrong port? And then they're like, oh, but where did that go? Where was that? You know, it, it, yeah. it could be very messy. So the fewer cables you've got, the more you can simplify that, the better, yeah, really. Absolutely right. And, you know, and again, from a security point of view, you know, that, that piece becomes dramatically simplified as well. If I don't, if I can't really address any of these nodes in, in their own right, because they're stateless, I've actually yeah. got one IP address to protect, which is, you know, con- which is essentially the control point for the entire fabric, whether I've got 10 nodes or 100 nodes or 1,000 nodes. I'm essentially managing the fabric, not the nodes. You can imagine for us, given that we also offer this secure provenance capability, that's a yeah. deeply attractive proposition if you really care about your, you know, data data sovereignty and, you know, the protection of your, of your, of your real estate. Yeah. So how, so let's let's move up a, a, a level mm. then, and sounds you know we, we talked talked um, quite a lot there about the hardware. Sure. You mentioned about writing your you know the BIOS and presumably the OS or at least the hypervisor that's uh, running this in the in the background. So what happens when we get we get above that? You've obviously written all of that software, all of that code that allows me to, to, to determine that for instance I want to build things at like multi-tenancy and all mm. all of that's built into what you've actually developed exactly so you know un- unsurprising there are, there are elements within there which are, are drawn from open source in the same way that, that everything is you know we didn't rewrite mm. Ceph you know there's the storage as, for example the file block and object services that are exposed through hypercloud are based on on, uh, on Ceph under the hood we just ex- abstract right. away all of the complexity of trying to manage Ceph in that instance uh, and similarly, you know, we didn't re- recreate an entire networking stack. But what we have done, as you say, is uh, we re- we've built we've written the operating system from the kernel uh, that's running on on all the appliances because there wasn't one that really worked for stateless nodes. We've re- written all the firmware that that um, manages uh, the BMC, for example. So we have complete granular control over all of the hardware. And then, as you say, as you move up through the stack. Um, we have the entire tenancy management to build uh, multi-tenancy. 
We then have our own marketplace of, of applications, which you can then expose and build your own applications to run and your own services and templates. You can also connect to any of the public marketplaces and, and pull in applications and, and services from, from those. You can build out quotas and metering. So you can do showback, for example, and figure out who's using what and then plug that, export that into your billing system or into your accounting system, whether it's you know an inter commercial service or an internal service. So all of that is actually contained. When you buy the boxes, all of that is in the boxes. So there's no external connectivity required, no external IP connectivity. All of that capability is actually in in hypercloud the moment you install it and turn it on this side of it is i think really important because it's we said at the very beginning it's very easy to build um what you might call an uh, hyper-converged infrastructure, or you might just build a whole range of VMware servers that have got some sort of centralized storage it doesn't really matter what you've built is you've built a virtualized virtual server or virtualized environment virtualized compute let's call it for yeah. now and that's great but what you haven't built in when you built that is you haven't built the ability to uh, enable the consumption models the way that the cloud providers do. So you haven't said, for example, um, you can't create anything outside of this network range, or we're going to make sure that all of your networking is isolated. So you have to build routing in between leaving your tenant and going anywhere else in the network. And you know, when we, when we provide you storage, it will be provided to you personally, and it won't be shared with any other tenant, exactly. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. And even more so is that ability to then build services on that. So if you want to build a service, somebody else can decide in this you know, company, you can only build services that are based on the templates that we give you. And those templates have been validated and we know exactly what they are. We know how we're going to support them. That just creates a degree of standardization that really makes life a lot easier from for everybody really I, I, I think you're absolutely right and i think if you flip flip right uh, flip the uh, the view of the cloud if you like over to the application developer there's a reason they wanted to use the public cloud in the first place and it was that consumption experience you know all of those templates and services and applications that were available at their fingertips if you're trying to replicate or if you want them to use your infrastructure whether you're an internal enterprise it organization or you're a smaller service provider you've got to replicate that experience otherwise they'll go they'll get the credit card out and go straight back to the public cloud right yeah but at the same time you know there are reasons why public cloud is useful still even if you're running your own infrastructure you might want certain workloads it might not be efficient for you to run them or you might you know want them to run in in the public cloud to provide performance in a location you're not necessarily present in for example or have the ability to burst because you know at christmas time you need five times the infrastructure that you want to run yourself. All of those kinds of reasons. And exotic devices, you know, why pay for GPUs that you're only yeah. going to use a little bit of the yes, time exactly. when, when those GPUs refresh so frequently. Exactly. Don't waste your capital cost. Let somebody else pay for it and you use it when you need exactly. it. Exactly. You know? So what we've done within HyperCloud is we've enabled uh, the operator of, of that cloud to bring in some of those public cloud services and expose them as... Uh, additional services within your service catalog, you know, additional zones that you can then create. So now you're controlling your application developer's ability to get to those services, and you're, you know, you're selecting the public cloud or clouds that, uh, that whose services you want to incorporate in there. So you're kind of getting the best of both worlds. Like we were saying, you're kind of flipping the outpost type model on its head because now the outpost, if you like, the hyper cloud 
your on-prem cloud infrastructure is in control of public cloud, not the other way around, uh, which we think is, you know, obviously a, a much better division of power, you know, put it back in the hands of the customer rather than the cloud vendor. Yeah, that bursting capability is a great example because uh, who was it? Who was it was um, telling us about 23 and me recently? I can't remember now whether it was somebody I spoke to or something I watched. And one of the things they were saying with that was, guess when the peak comes in at Christmas time right. and New Year, when everybody sends somebody a gift, which is, you know, have your, your DNA uh -huh. analyzed. So, of course, people get them as gifts. First thing they do in January is go and log on to the website. The website sees a massive spike in demand. The analysis yeah. process at the back end sees a massive spike in demand. So what do you need to do? You need to process that, but you don't need that peak all year round. So you need the ability to scale into the cloud to be able to manage that when you need it, but you don't necessarily need it all year round. Exactly. And there must be hundreds and hundreds of examples. Any media organization, when there's a big story comes up, like probably next week when we get a new prime minister, um, <laughs> you know, because we seem to be the time on of recording. Sort of We're on the third one in three months, is it? <laughs> We should declare that, shouldn't we? Yes, at the time of recording, it is the third one in three months. Um, but you know, the, the, all all of a sudden, everybody's looking online to trace, you know, what's going on, what's going on at the news. And yeah. I know that the, those sort of vendors have to deal with big spikes. So of course, wouldn't it be better if if they dealt with that in an on-demand fashion? So it's sort of it gives you the best of both worlds. I think possibly the only challenge there is how do you manage the data between them? And if you can crack that problem and make sure you can burst application workloads into the cloud and still keep the data consistent, then you're probably in a good place. Yeah, well, I mean, so what we're doing is essentially exposing public cloud resources the same way as we'd expose other federated clouds of hypercloud as well. So they're all just zones that you can, um, you know, you can allocate uh, jobs to uh, as, or, you right. know, as as designed, you know, within the services that you've you've built. So. It's all kind of within there, both federating across your hyper cloud instances, if you have more than one, but also, you know, utilizing public cloud as, as just another zone fundamentally within the bounds of obviously what that zone, what that cloud vendor supports. Um, but yeah. So how, how do things like um, maintenance work, lifecycle management around, say, the hardware mm -hmm. and the software? Because obviously, as you've we've mentioned already, the cloud vendors must do it in the background, but very rarely do you ever see anybody that says, we need to reboot your VM. Yeah. Occasionally you get an email yeah. going, we have to reboot your VM this weekend, but I think I've had it two or three times ever. Yeah. So this is there's obviously maintenance going on, but there must be a process you know, the, that you're yeah. using to manage exactly. this. Exactly. So this is the beauty of owning the entire infrastructure and the entire stack. So we, we call it fleet management as opposed to lifecycle management because, okay. um, again, we enable the fabric that's, that's con the, the, the control plane, if you like, distributed control plane to manage all of that for you. So if let's say there's a firmware update you want to roll out, you uh, upload that firmware update to the first node uh, and then the fabric manages the uh, rollout of that across all of the others, as, as, you know, one simple example. Uh, so it's it's, de it's taking nodes out of out of ac out of uh, action, upgrading, updating them, checking that they're they're working effectively, and then reintroducing them into the cloud, and just rolling all the way through automatically without right. you ever touching it. The beauty of the stateless nodes, they're talking about the lifecycle management of individual nodes. Well, there's a couple of benefits there. Obviously, they almost become disposable in not in a, not in a kind of throwaway sense, but you know. 
you can add and remove them if one dies. There's no single point of failure in any of those. So you're adding more capacity as you need it. It almost becomes organic in terms of your ability to to add new capabilities, add new performance levels, new types of node as well. So we manage, we already, as, as you know, we already um, have ARM and x86-based uh, appliances within our hardware platform. And we can actually manage infrastructure that has both ARM and x86 and the fabric decides where the most appropriate um, uh, compute capacity is, for example, uh, right. itself. So it manages that kind of multi, um, multi-processor multi type architecture. But as we add more capability and different kinds of nodes, the fabric is designed to do that, again, because it's stateless um, and, and can recognize the optimal place to put different workloads. So how's the um, customer going to buy this? And I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll sort of preload that question with a little bit of a, a little bit of something that'll probably help you understand what I'm what I'm thinking here. If I was just buying something as a, I don't know, a, a node and racking it and put it in into a data center, I could buy it, I could lease it, I could, I could maybe I could consume it by buying the consumption, you know, mm. the, the value of what it, you know, a storage node could be sold to me in, in gigabytes or something like that. But I wonder whether there's a scenario where if you are doing all the fleet management that you might get to a point where you go back to a customer and say, well, actually, we've analyzed your environment. We've worked out that you've got a hundred of these one U nodes. And actually, we've got a new node coming out and it's going to be a little bit more efficient. Mm -hmm. We can replace them for you. But, and you may have customers who want the smaller one you know so you could sort of do back-end fleet yeah. management if you like which optimizes your costs but also optimizes maybe things like customers power and space and yeah. cooling and all that sort of stuff no it's an interesting idea I, I, the whole consumption model thing is is an interesting one isn't it especially when you think about green lake and apex and, and those kinds of models yeah. so funny enough i've just written a blog post where I I, I'm, I kind of called them a, a complexity stealth tax, really, because you're essentially, that business model is designed to essentially abstract away all of the complexity from all those divisions behind a, a wall of professional services. Entirely. And, and, and in the case of what we're doing at Softime with HyperCloud, that all of that complexity is now abstracted away for you deep in the technology. It's, it's, it's solved in, in the technology fabric. And so the value of that, kind of model is is lessened and even consuming on a monthly basis is lessened because it's so it's simple to add more capacity and so what we've decided to do at least right now is make it super simple you buy the boxes you might buy a you know support and maintenance agreement on top of that but essentially you're buying hardware and all of the licensing comes with the hardware so you, you can consume every every bit of the CPU in every box, every terabyte of storage uh, in every box right. uh, from day one. And all of that uh, consumption layer stuff above is all completely integrated and all all part of the purchase price of of the products. And that makes it super simple because that's really what we're trying to do. You know, we're trying to think about the whole process of buying and living with a cloud uh, and, and solve it all. And again, I think, as I was saying, in these consumption models, oftentimes underpinning those is, is the fact that it's really complicated and you really don't, don't want to have to do it. If we've just solved all of that, so you don't need to do it because the technology does it, then then those models become less attractive as well. Yeah, well, I'll tell you how I look at it. So um, I look at it like a swan gliding along on a lake. Mm -hmm. 
and the, the top of the swan the stuff you can see that looks all lovely is the front end service to you so you get told you can buy per the, by the gigabyte you know you'll get performance bronze silver gold and it's all wonderful and actually behind the scenes is the swan with its legs going over everywhere trying to keep itself afloat and you know keep itself fighting against the tide and all that sort of stuff and the current and that's the equivalent of what a lot of the vendors are trying to yeah. do. They've put basically the same product that they used to sell to you when it was just sold to you and you managed it into your data center. And now they're having to find ways to manage it, which is going to cost them more money because it's the same product as they put in your data center when you were managing it. And as a result, they either charge you more in terms of the, mm. the, the cost and you, you pay more or they make less margin off it and they're selling you a product that they're not making as much money on. And in fact, it's actually a flawed model for them because they don't make as much money on it. It's got to be one of the two. So it's, it is. And, and until you re-engineer your product to be a product that is managed in a way that's delivered as a service, similar to what you've done, some other vendors have done a similar thing. Unless you re-engineer the product to be like that, you will always have more overhead and more cost. And either the customer's paying or you're losing out on your margin, one of the two. Yeah. It, can't, it just can't work any other way. Yeah. And if, if underpinning all of that is this complexity problem, let's not forget the people problem, because it's not like, you know, highly skilled IT staff are, are 10 a penny right now. You know, there's a massive shortage right around the world. Yeah. So you've got to solve the problem in a different way. You know, you can't just kind of keep doing the same thing and just put a different business model around it. You, you know, you've got to go back to, to grassroots and, and start again. And that's really what we're trying to do. I mean, we didn't even really talk about the way we're manufacturing. You know, we're just about to open the factory in Australia. So we're, we're building these small cells of manufacture close to customers to try and also look at the, you know, what we can do around the supply chain problem, both in terms mm. of sovereignty, um, which is one of the reasons that we've, we've moved, we're, Australia is our second manufacturing facility. But also, you know, over time, the mo this model of having to go to massive manufacturer in order to get efficiency, it's kind of broken. Also, if mm. you design it yourself, you can design for really, you know, for efficient manufacturer using the latest technologies. And you, you don't have to go to one of these massive subcontract manufacturers anymore to build a, you know, competitive, profitable product, you know, uh, that, that isn't. That, you know that's still priced priced competitively um, well i think perhaps you know that's a that's a conversation for another mm. time because we've we've managed to um uh, talk a quite long time we here, actually. we've done pretty well uh, to, to to get through all of this so um let's park a few of those things for another time you know we can always come back and help people understand that sure. let them let them absorb what we've told them today and really sort of think through what that means and as a result Clearly, softiron.com is going to be your website. Yeah. Uh, any other materials or any sort of social media you want to push them towards, or should we just say softiron.com? Yeah, definitely head to softiron.com uh, to get you know that kind of um, that kind of overview. We're also uh, running on GitLab now in terms of having samples for uh, of how to utilize uh, HyperCloud if you're a you know your application developer wanting to understand it. But yeah, softiron.com is definitely the best place to start. I would say. Brilliant. Well, Andrew, fantastic. Great conversation. We've talked for a long time. Yeah. This should be um, really interesting to come for people to uh, probably listen to a couple of times just to absorb the, <laughs> exactly. the level of detail we've gone sure. into because we've talked for about sure. huge amount of stuff. But, you know, for now, um, great to talk to you again and uh, look forward to catching up Thank soon. You. Thanks for inviting me on, Chris. It's been great. You've been listening to the Hybrid Cloud Podcast from Architecting IT. 
For show notes and more, subscribe at hybridcloudpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Architecting IT or join our LinkedIn group by searching for Architecting IT. You can find us on all good podcatchers, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Spotify.